Hi everyone, this is Dave Newbert, Marketing Director for Eagle Eye Power Solutions, and welcome to our podcast, DC Power Hour, the show where we will discuss everything related to, you guessed it, critical DC power solutions. So charge up, power on, or do whatever it takes to get yourself excited for the episode of DC Power Hour. All right, welcome back everyone to another episode of DC Power Hour. Excited again to have the full battery Blarney duo here, along with Doug Walner, one of our inside sales reps here at, at Eagle Eye. And we're going to kind of pick up where we left off a few weeks ago, talking about some of the current customer demands that that some of our, our sales team is seeing, some of the trends in the industry. And Doug's going to try and stump the, the battery Blarney duo and see if they can keep up with them and, and find some some good answers to these these questions. So thanks for joining us again, everyone. Good to see you all around this this holiday time of year. So Alan, are you feeling festive today? No, but I'm li- living the dream. But when you get as old as I am, it's one day at a time, sir. So so we got another session of stump the chumps, have we? Something like <laughs> that. Yep. Yeah. I got a bit of a cold today at coughing a bit so Hope it doesn't affect the, the podcast. So let's go. All right, let's let's hear it. So Doug, welcome back. What do you what do you got for the guys here today? Well, thanks for having me on here again today. I have a handful of questions here regarding stationary power equipment again, and I'm going to touch on two topics here today specifically. And uh, first one's going to be racking, battery racking, and then the second one is going to be battery charging. So we'll roll right into battery racking questions with the first question being, what are the seismic and UBC zones and how have they changed over time? Meaning are they they more or less important now than they were years ago? You want me to start on that one, Alan? Yeah, I, I probably have a lot of input, but you go ahead, George. Well, it's, it's, the, 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 the real question is that they have changed. The, the, the zones actually no longer apply. You are supposed to, uh, under the latest set of codes, it's all about looking at the area, look and doing research into the the change in seismic behavior you have as a result of the uh, a lot of the fracking and things like that. We are seeing seismic events in areas that never saw them before. Uh, so the the actual zones themselves, I don't. It's something like. 20 years since they were actually ref- the last time they were refreshed and it's you you are supposed to do a study and the, basically the battery manufacturer should be able to help you with that the, the people that are making the racks should be able to help you and supply you with information as to what's required for that specific area it was a lot easier in the old days when, when Alan and I were doing the majority of our stuff like that is you're right you had the zone areas you knew exactly what it was where you had to do it. But now you're supposed to do some more investigation into it. Well, you're, you're certainly right, George, in that it changed a lot. These seismic zones originated with the Uniform Building Code, which is mainly out of California, with a couple of other codes, Southern Building Code, and there's another one, George, I can't remember, but they decided on these seismic zones based on history. And they drew a very nice map. And if you wanted a rack and you were going to put it in Frederick, Maryland, or whether you're going to put it in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 
you go to that map and look and see what seismic zone it was. Well, along came the International Fire Code, which was on the International Building Code, which was an attempt to get all these various building codes together so that, you know, Jive and they said the same thing, basically. So that's when I went away from, I believe it was, they call them seismic zones, but now I believe they call them earthquake zone or something like that. But you're right, George, in that they're based on updated information. And that made it a little bit difficult for those, you know, specifying the battery racks and everything else. So what I used to do, and I believe the industry's gone that way, is, okay, we had two types of rack. We had one that met the old seismic zone one, two, and one that met the old seismic zones three and four. So you either had a, you had two choices, in other words, simplified everything. The seismic zone, different to us, basically, that with a seismic zone four or earthquake zone four, you needed top support. Whereas the other ones, all you had to do is bottom and side support. So that's the way, that's, the way, that's how I dealt with it. And I don't know how you guys do it up there, but it's not a bad idea. So what, what do you think of that approach, George? Well, I, I think part of the trouble is, I think this is what Doug's getting at, is a lot of our customers still ask for it based on the old USB system. You know, we want a Zone 4 rack or a Zone 3 rack. All right, Doug? That's Correct. So, and this, I think his question is coming from the fact is that we, he knows there's other things happened and it's how to do it. But I think your solution is the best. You know, if there's any possibility of seismic risk, you use the uh, three or four rated rack. If there is, then use the basic one. You know, I think I think that's the simplest way to go to it. Well, also tell the customer what we're doing because, you know, what used to be a seismic zone one or zero, even they had a seismic zone zero, today could be, one or two between ordering the rack and delivering the system, things could have changed. So we're not only covering ourselves, but we're covering our customer and let the customer know that. There's one thing I would like to say about the seismic zones, and you're familiar with this, George, as well. It also depends where the battery is being placed, where it's being above grade, below grade, what floor is going on, things like that. So. That has to be taken into consideration. A lot of times the integrator doesn't even know where the battery's going. So what do you do? Give them a seismic zone for, for a rack. You know, they it's not double the price of a seismic two. And one other word on this, since we're on the subject, uh, I've seen it both ways, but when they send out a seismic zone for a rack, they send out spacers for the battery, polystyrene or styrofoam spacers. And, in my mind, this is not a good idea because it, although it gives a little bit more protection, it just ruins the airflow around the battery. So, do you have you seen that, George? Have, do you have any any points on that? Yeah, I, I, well, I agree with you. What you're saying is that if you put the spaces in, you've just got rid of half the airflow that's necessary to keep the battery cool. And again, it's going to depend on where it's being installed, no? how it's being installed, what's the environmental conditions you're working under. 
But, but you've you've summed up that probably the biggest challenge we have as a vendor here is that we don't get all the information. You know, we we the people that are ordering it for, from us don't know what the actual site re, uh, requirements are, things like that. You know, I so send our send our guys out to do an installation, and they don't even know what the site looks like till they get there. And there's, you know, we could go on and on with this. There's uh, other things to come into consideration. That's anchoring bolts, type of anchoring bolts. They, uh, with a, if you have an equipment rack there, you know, that's also subject to strict zone requirements or seismic requirements. You know, you, you know you've know, you come across it, George, mm -hmm. where certain tenses, it has to be bolted to the wall behind it. But you've got to be careful to avoid shall we say, the thing self-destructing because ladder and longitudinal forces are different. So that's a whole new that's a whole new thing where we could probably deal with a whole podcast on that. So, <laughs> so I'm 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 shaking here. So I think we've just had a seismic zone. Oh no, it's just more it just drove up and uh, put the brakes on too hard outside here. So we're okay. So your, your answer actually kind of rolled right into my next question. My next question was actually in regards to spacers in between the jars on the racks. So in a lot of cases, bedroom manufacturers, they'll put in basically styrofoam sheets in the packaging of the shipment, where many end users will will throw those styrofoam sheets in between the jars. You mentioned that that's a issue for airflow there. Some of the rack manufacturers, what they'll do in, instead of those styrofoam sheets, what they'll have included with the racks or as accessories to the racks, are basically corrugated PVCs or, or rib packings or, or PVC spacers. You kind of alluded to which is better, but that was going to be my next question there. What are the pros and cons of, of, of each of those two types of accessories for the racks? Well, my answer simply is it's the, the corrugated plastic. Two reasons. One, A, it's stronger than the polystyrene sheets. You know, the, the very corrugation gives it strength and it still allows airflow. That's, you know, would you agree, Alan? Uh, are you talking about the kind of the honeycomb? Yes. George? Yes. Well, let me back off here. Depends what type of battery. Here we go with the old depends again. If you have a vented lead acid battery with uh, liquid electrolyte, the, it's not as bad putting in the spacers or the, the even the uh, styrofoam because it has natural convection cooling on the other three other two sides but with a VRLA battery which has got limited convection cooling and depending on airflow between the batteries I would say don't do it if anything and you want to keep the space keep space there a meat seismic zone you can just put in a i like the ones that do have a little groove in the racking which forces you to keep the batteries you know quarter half inch apart but i don't know how that will meet the earthquake zone requirements my attitude is make sure find out what the local inspector wants right most of the time as far as seismic zone requirements and batteries, they don't have a clue. So I would have the, have the, if I was installing a system, 
and the manufacturer sent those styrofoam sheets. I would just keep them. And if the electric inspector or the fire marshal, whoever wanted them, fine, put them in. But if they don't spot it or don't pick it up, just don't, just leave them up. The, tr the trouble is, the question that has to be is, when that rack was tested, was it tested with these spaces in place or wasn't it? Nine times out of ten, it wasn't, in my opinion. So sometimes you can get a statement, a tested pair, particularly NEBS, George, you're referring to, I think. Mm -hmm. you know, network equipment building standards. You see it's tested in accordance GR 855, I believe it is, or something like that. Fine, but, you know, it's a gray area. And a lot of times, the gray areas, you can take advantage of it. Just like I'm going to talk about, say, spillment containment, for instance. But uh, sum it all up. Don't put them in if you, if you don't have to. I don't know if that answers the question or not. It answers the question from trying to get maximum life out of the battery. It's, you know. I, my, my, if you have put a zone four rack in with all the rest of the supports, it's not going to be that much difference. If, it's, take a lot. if it is sufficiently violent to cause them to crack together, you've got more serious problems than worrying about a couple of cells getting cracked. Makes sense. Okay. Okay. What, what, what have we got next there? You know, David, you can ask a question as well if you want to. I know you're eager to learn. That's all right. I'm I'm good right now, but we'll see if see if I come up with anything. So I'll I'll add one more here into kind of the racking category, even though it's kind of offshooting, but just because Alan kind of touched on it here in his most recent explanation there. Spill containment. Is it recommended for BRLA batteries? It no. depends. Yeah. George knows this is one of my hot topics, and I'm sure he can add a lot to it. Or unless you want to start off, George, but it's one of these. It depends things, and why don't you just give you give your opinion, George, and then okay. anything you theoretically, need, I'll, I'll theoretically, it is not required. It's not required under the the building codes or the or the fire code to have it. In the the fact is, if you have BLA cells. You you don't need to have spill containment or a cleanup kit. However, you do have to have a neutralization kit if you've got VRLA cells in place. In other words, the, the, the theory behind it is there is no free electrolyte as such within the VRLA cell. It's contained within the separator. So if you do crack the if you only crack the cell open or it cracks, or it's, somebody hits it, as long as they don't damage the separator, the the acid should stay in place. But in the event that this, the separator does get damaged and some of the acid comes out of it, you need a neutralization kit in order to neutralize the acid at that particular area. But that's not spill containment. That's what, the, that's what it says in the fire code. I know I've read it. Well, let me add a couple of things here. It's usually right, George. I call it drip containment, you know, for VRLA batteries. Because if you, as an old boss of ours, George, a previous company, 
used to do when he took customers around the R&D lab was he, he'd carry a hammer with them, walk by past a three-hour-old battery, hit it with a hammer, and crack it, and nothing come out. So, but then that's a, one way of demonstrating it. But with a absorbed electrolyte or a gelled electrolyte, both types of free-relay batteries, according to code, the IEEE codes, it's not required. And I wrote a technical paper on it, which is available to anybody up there. But on the other hand, there's two reasons you might want to supply spill containment to a VRLA battery. One is if the customer asks for it. Actually, there's three, three, three reasons. One is the customer asks for it. Who are we to say, okay, you don't require it? B, if the authority having jurisdiction requires it, and I can name at least three cities in this country, major cities, where it doesn't matter what the codes say, the, the local codes, local fire codes, require spill containment. So, so anyway. And the third reason is, hey, we sell spill containment. So why shouldn't we supply it? But well, it's another one of these. It depends, but I could make a, I could make a, a case both ways for having spill containment. One thing about spill containment, we're talking about it. There's rules and regulations with respect to installing it, and I've seen them violated most times. And that is, they're only allowed to protrude, or four inches. I believe it is, George, uh, from mm. under the, the, you know, the cell. And yeah. I've seen this protrude where it comes to hazard to maintenance more than anything else. And I have, in my time, maybe one or two occasions, have I actually seen a spill, or shall I say a drip, from a valve-regulated lead-acid battery. I don't know if you've ever seen any, George, Maybe some drips, but certainly not a spill. So no, I no, call it spill I, container. No, the uh, no, I, I haven't because the the only the only time I ever had a VRLE cell break apart on me when I was removing it, um, the the customer was absolutely panic stricken, wanted to know where the spill, you know, our clean up and everything else was. I pointed out to him the thing was so dry that I probably needed a mask for lead dust. Not, not for any liquid because there was none in it you know it was a... you would, it, it never hurts to have a cleanup kit you know it doesn't cost all that much well, no. a neutralization kit exactly that's the, you should have no, the so... code requires the neutralization and when i'm talking about code i'm talking about nfpa1 yes so that's the one i'm familiar with at the present moment because i cover it as part of the training and it specifically specifies that it doesn't need a spill containment, but you do need a neutralization kit for the specific uh, chemical. Does the spill containment count as a neutralization kit? Is that one and the same under no, that? No, no, it isn't actually. Because you, you have three parts. You've got a spill containment. You actually need a cleanup kit. And a neutralization kit. There's three separate components to it. 
So, and I think we sell all of those. Did you ever, yeah. did you ever I, sell any, Doug? Not the neutralization kits. Yeah. I don't have we actually got them limited. Are they listed on our I believe they are. Okay. They should we have don't them. sell them very much, no. but yeah, yeah. Good to know. Uh, but you know, since we're on spill containment here, just throw in without going off too much on a tangent. For for vented lead acid batteries, spill containment is very important. But not only spill containment, the amount of electrolyte in the batteries comes into the whole calculation. It used to be 50 gallons. I think they've, they've changed that. But you have to be very aware of the amount of electrolyte in the batteries. And that's why most of the old manufacturer specifications, or I believe it's still in place, on their specs, on their data sheet, they will give you the amount of electrolyte and the weight of electrolyte in that particular battery cell. So, that's, so if you're working with ventilated acid, you really need sometimes an expert to come up with what's the total weight or the total volume of electrolyte in that particular battery to direct you in the amount of spill, not only spill containment, but cleanup kit you need. Yeah, but basically the number of pouches you need to be able to absorb that level of, isn't it, isn't it you'd be able to absorb the electrolyte from one cell? Exactly, it's one cell, George. But there again, I don't want to belabor the point, but it's a very important subject. And, you know, to me, when I, we were doing it, it's showed the customer that we were educated. And the customer more likely to go with an educated supplier in a bidding process than he is with somebody who doesn't even ask the question. So, mm -hmm. Moving on. All right. Thank you both for the answers to those. So we'll we'll change topics here a little bit, and we're going to discuss chargers. Starting with the chargers, very simple, short question here for you. I'm sure it's going to have a lengthy response, though, which uh, I'm I'm happy to hear it. What is battery? What is the difference between battery filtering and battery eliminating functionality of a charger? Oh boy, now George, you better go on because I will go on and on on this one. So, you know, I haven't got the gift of brevity, but you better start off, George. Because people here don't think I've got the gift of brevity either, believe me. It, well, the way I understand it, and again, this is one of these cases, is it's how people interpret something. But you said battery filtering. The battery itself becomes a filter. In other words, the calculation of how much ripple you want to avoid in the, in the final, you know, on the output um, can be determined either by the amount of filtering that's in the charger itself or the size of the battery. In some cases, people will say, okay, the battery is going to do a large part of the filtering. But then that's when you start to have problems as the battery ages. The other thing is that you can either, you can actually have additional filtering in the charger. You have to have a certain amount of filtering in the charger. You can also add extra filtering. And then they often refer to that as a battery eliminator. In other words, the level of filtering that's in the charger is sufficient to operate without a battery attached to it and still provide clean power. Is that simple enough, Alan? That's very, summed up very nicely there, George. Battery eliminator, as George says, is uh, uh, the ability of the charger to operate without a battery connected. A battery is like a big capacitor, and when connected to a charger, 
there's great filtering effect. And the telecom specified actually how much filtering it will provide. And one of the old calculations we used to have to do is we used to have to calculate a particular battery because sometimes it would specify something like the, the battery had to be capable of filtering down to, you know, so many TB or NC or whatever mm. uh, you were using. Also, the old chargers there, I remember the, with the control ferrules, you probably do as well, George, they ha actually had a, a little circuit that you plugged into the motherboard that offered this filtering. So I remember that very clearly because we had a customer in New York and I was trying to fault find over the uh, over the phone with him. And I said, have you got the battery eliminator, eliminator fitted? You know, so this little printed circuit card. And he said, yes. I said, okay, then what I want you to do is disconnect the battery. And I was on the phone with him and he was using the PBX that uh, the power system was supporting. I was on the phone, suddenly silence. So that, that you don't want to hear when you're trying to fault find over the phone. But now the, uh, with regard to the filtering itself, there's two types. There's a very good write-up in the Annex A or Annex B, I believe it is, to PRC, sorry, not PRC, IEEE 1491, George. That's your document, your mm -hmm. body at the moment. It's a very good Annex on ripple and noise. And it mentions a lot about filtering and gives some facts and figures. Very good, very good Annex. And I can say that because I wrote it. But so if you want additional information, go to PRC 02. Sorry, no. I keep saying PRC. I've, I've got PRC on the brain these days, George. But anyway, I should believe 1491. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, there's there's a large amount of documents around that Alan started at one point. Probably been amended a few times since, but... So... If, before we leave that one, and we're talking about, you know, filtering. One of my pet peeves these days is UPSs because they don't take into consideration fully enough the effects of the charger on the filtering of the system. So they take shortcuts, they eliminate uh, transformers and chokes and things like that. And the result is you put a lot of ripple on the battery, especially the VRLA batteries that they're using. And, you know, they can think they can get away with it. But most of the smart battery manufacturers now, VRLA battery manufacturers, they're giving, they're playing the warranty game. But you look at a certain bat type battery, and you may say that it's five years warranty. But if you use with a UPS, it's only three years warranty. Have you come across that, George? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I came across it at one of those IEEE meetings you're talking about, where we were talking about, at 1491, we were talking about noise and ripple. And one of the UPS manufacturers was absolutely adamant that they met every requirement for ripple, and you could not blame the UPS for uh, short battery life. And one of the manufacturers turned around and said, look, I have a simple answer to you for that. If I put your battery, if I put your UPS with this battery, 
it may be last three years. If I put it onto a telecom system, it lasts 10. He said, so don't tell me that you're not doing something to my battery. And that was, it was as you can guess, the, the meeting sort of came to a halt at that point for a little while. Because this guy was absolutely angry about being told that there was no problem with the UPS. I can probably guess who it was, George, but I won't go there. <laughs> anyway. You probably can. Next. Next and stump the chump here. All right. All right. Let's see here. Keeping with the chargers, the, the Eagle Eye BC 2500 chargers, they're modular, and they're going to meet the N plus one redundancy requirement by having one more IPM than what's required for the amperage. If that application calls for 28 amps, but the charger has IPMs for 32 amps installed, how does the charger know to output only 28 amps? The charger doesn't know anything about how much to output. It simply knows how much is being demanded by the load. The load demands, the load determines the current that comes from the charger. And when, you, when you're talking about sizing the charger, you have to look at <clears throat> there's, well, there's a lot more to it than, than typically people do, but you should be looking at, you know, how much how much power do you need to power the load? How much power, extra power do you require to supply that load and recharge the battery within the required recharge time, whether it's eight hours, 10 hours, 20 hours, whatever the, whatever the customer specifies the recharge time to be, and you also have to have redundancy. But the, there's, there's a number of ways to do it, and it depends who your customer is. Uh, a lot of the times when I've been sizing a modular system, I will actually use that modular charger, the last the, the, the plus one charger, as the additional power required to do the recharge on the basis that if for any reason you have a faulty charger module at the time, you have to do a recharge then you know as long as you can get that replaced very fast you you'll you, okay you won't recharge as fast but you won't lose the system and it does keep the cost down but you know some customers i know especially in europe a lot of the customers absolutely insist that there is the redundancy comes after you've done the extra power for the recharge which is really a lot of it's a lot of wasted energy so your thoughts on that one alan I kind of agree with you, yes, George. I do agree with you, but a uh, couple of other things uh, you might want to take into consideration here is that uh, you know, uh, how how do the, you said how do the chargers know what to output? The chargers will output what they're capable of outputting. Bottom line. So when you have a redundant system, this the chargers are operating essentially in parallel if they have forced load sharing which I believe that charger does have, George. You may, mm -hmm. you may have to correct me on that. No, so, so all the modules, you don't have one module sitting there inactive. All the modules are supplying power. So if you lose one module, so what? The other modules take over and you have that capacity. The other thing you need to take into consideration is, I believe, is that the, when you actually size the system and you have a battery disconnect or battery disconnects in the system 
right? They, you may want to size, put a lot of thought of sizing those and the output DC breakers from the chargers so that you can meet the requirements of a, say, one battery being offline. I'm going off on a tangent here, George, but I think you know where I'm going in this. Well, I know, you, I know the, exactly where you're going. But the other thing is that when you have a load-sharing system and you're recharging a battery and it's redundant chargers, here's the caution if you're using it with VRLA batteries. These days, a lot of the VRLA battery manufacturers are specifying the maximum recharge current. They'll say, but no recharge current can be no more than C over five, say. Five has been the capacity divided by five. So keep it simple. If it's a 100 ampere hour battery, capacity divided by five is 20 amps. So they're saying that the maximum, that's the maximum you can recharge that battery. Now, if you have a lot of redundant chargers, they don't know that. So they're going to, when the battery goes, say, as a full discharge, and it goes into recharge, system goes into recharge, those charges are going to output whatever that load will take. And that's first part of recharge. That's basically everything. So if you have too much redundancy, you've got another problem. So uh, maybe that's outside the scope of this answer. But when you talk about battery charging, boy, you need to be good, good at it. You need to know everything. And once again, wouldn't you know that Eagle Eye has a technical note on battery charging? So, so. written written by someone local, important, <laughs> knowledgeable. Well, Alan, no, Alan's being, exactly right. Been around it a long time. Yes, there, there's there's far more to it than most people realize, and that, that <clears throat> what I said earlier about using the the redundant charger as part of the calculation for the recharge is a way to control the amount of power that's available to recharge the, the battery with. But you've got to you've got to size it correctly. I think one of the challenges we have, Alan, when we're selling it to people is uh, they often, they don't understand the whole uh, benefits of a, a modular system. You have to often try to explain to them that if this system is going to grow, what we'll do is we will sell them a much larger chassis with multiple slots, but we'll only fill it up for what you actually need at this point in time. But if you do add more load to it, then all you have to do is go and plug another charger in. But you definitely want to, if you're planning to go to a higher capacity, you need more capacity at some time in the future, you definitely need to make sure you have the chassis with the additional slots available to you. That's a great point, George. And you know, it's, you used to say, you know, if you had to have to add an additional charger or even change out a charger, if you have a modular system like we supply or Eagle Eye supplies, you know, even the sales guy can do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that gets me in trouble quite often, Alan. Just yeah. I've got to be careful with that. Doug's sitting right next to me at the moment. I watch it, guys. <laughs> well, so I'm, I'm remote. I'm remote, so I don't care. But <laughs> boy, you know, this we could do a complete podcast complete podcast, maybe two on battery charging, but it's, so, you know, you got to get the customer educated as well, not just our salespeople. We do a great job, I think, but a customer as well. So 
why why are we bidding this? You know, starts off, you may be looking for it, request for quotation, request for, for proposal that's written by some guy who has no clue and he's just uh, cut and pasted a, a proposal for a vented lead acid battery and but he really wants a valve regulated lead acid battery. So we see that we see that every day. So anyway, so moving on. So have, have, we have we confused you sufficiently or Thoroughly. are you learning anything? <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you both very much. So we're going to bring this to the last question here. We got about five minutes left here, a little bit less than five minutes. So I want to open this to a question here. I, I think the answer for this question is going to be another one here where you can mention that this will be a whole nother podcast worth of information unveiled with this question, but kind of just looking for your, your, your short answer on it. Customer has a soft spec and basically they simply say, I've got a 200 amp hour string. I need a charger for it. What's the equation to size an appropriate charger for that with that information available only? The simple answer well, to that, you can't. Well, first, you've got to ask a question. Okay. So you got to, you say a 200 ampere hour battery? Correct. You guys ask, what's the autonomy? You know, what do you want this battery to do? How long do you want it to keep your load up for? Okay. That's what you, sizing the charger is based on that, right? Which don't forget, uh, you know, if you have a, say, a, Eight, 800 ampere hour battery. And I say that because it makes it easy for me, but you know, and you have, you want to supply a hundred amps for eight hours. You, you'd say, okay, I need a 800 ampere hour battery, but this, you know, there's things like, okay, so now I know what to do. So you've got to size your charges for the battery. Remember we, we said, you know, what's the recharge time? So somebody come in you and said, I need to charge an 800 ampere battery. Okay. You can say, do you want the, the quick charger or the, or the slow charger? If he wants the slow charger, send him down to the hardware store and get a battery keeper, battery saver. If he wants a fast recharge, tell him, tell him he needs a 100 ampere charger. So I, don't, I don't know if there's any answer to that question, George. Maybe that's but, uh, yeah, it's, I'm, maybe I'm being were, facetious, but yeah, I think you're. But I, I know where Doug's coming from because this is unfortunately, Alan. When you and I were doing this on a regular basis, just let's say our customers were more knowledgeable, we'd get very specific requirements. That is not what happens today. You get an answer like that. I have a two hundred amp hour battery. What charger do I need? As you said, the first thing you've got to find out is, is basically how long do you want that 200 amp hour battery to support the load? So you, you if you do that, the, the, then they say eight hours, okay, then you would, you 200 ampere hour, it would be 200 divided by eight. That would be the maximum current you could draw from that battery and last for eight hours. So theoretically, that would be the, that would be the first level of, of current you require for the charger, 100 amps. But then, then you talk about the recharge time, you the redundancy, all that adds into it. But you could think the thing that most people forget is that if you're talking about, say, it wants to do four hours, you aren't going to get uh, 200 amps out of that battery for four hours. 
you're going to, it's, you know, you, you, you're going to take it, it's going to be way down, you know, the total, because just because of the efficiency of the battery. You know, you know it from the time when you we were talking about you tell a customer with four strings of batteries in the or two string of batteries with their UPS, and one of the strings is basically dead, and they say, "Well, no, you know, we, we it's a fifteen minute battery. We got two of them, so we we still you know maybe seven and a half minutes. You know, there it's more likely it'll last about thirty seconds. You know." Oh, a, bit more, a little bit longer than that, George, but maybe it last, you know, two minutes, not, or else it just act as a fast fuse. So exactly. But, but, uh, you see what I'm saying is it's, it's you 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 start to become a little bit of a you know almost like a sorcerer to try and come up with the answer to some of these questions, but the customer simply doesn't know. Well, I've, I've been involved now here for over eight years, and I know in the early days when Andrew was doing some of this stuff, he would come back to me and I'd go, well, you need this, this, and this, you know? His, his normal complaint was that he would send me a two-line question and he'd get a page of answers in return, and most of it was questions. You know, but that's that's just the way you have to work at it. Well, you know, I, I feel for the sales guys. Because you're right, George. You know, a lot of not a lot of information coming. I I bid on a Air Force contract way way back, uh, and uh, the, the the bid package was I I don't jest about it. It was for UPS, Houston, and it was about two hundred pages. And in that two hundred pages, the the spec for the battery was it shall be a sealed maintenance it shall be a sealed maintenance free battery. One paragraph, and that was it. So, and that was coming out of the Department of Defense. So, so I was almost ready to, you know what. But yes. anyway, I hope, you know, we've, we're, I'm not talking just to our salespeople here, but I'm talking to all our customers. You know, we hope that we've been helping you in some way. I was thinking as we're going along, you know, battery charging, battery charging. We need to do a whole podcast on this, but it would take too long. So, George, how about if we uh, try and do a podcast on operating batteries in parallel, which is a massive subject? You Your just trying to make my life difficult? Uh, You're just trying well, to get to the end, you know. You want to do that? He's getting ambitious for 2024 here. Sounds like a great topic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I can, I can get people on both sides of the spectrum, probably. But... <laughs> People that are great people that, you know, are proponents of loads and loads of cells in parallel, which, by the way, you've got in your electric vehicle, believe it or not, yeah. hundreds of cells in serious parallel operating mode. Uh, some people don't even know what serious parallel operating mode is. But anyway, I've enjoyed today. Sorry, it's been a bit long winded, but there again, coming up to holiday season, probably try and get this out. Early in the new year, I don't know, Dave, but uh, yeah, yeah, that probably. Uh, why, why, why don't you bring bring this to a conclusion, so I can go and start making my Christmas cake, your fruit cake. Yes, a bit late. Yes. It's supposed to be done at least six weeks ago, so that the 
the whiskey could ferment properly in the in the oh, I, I keep watering it. You're adding a little bit more whiskey as the days go by. So the <laughs> other thing I have to do is make my Burns Irish Dream. Yes. I haven't done that yet this year. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I believe you guys have got the recipe. I think we do. Somewhere. We've got recipes for that and the the Alan Burn fruit cake that you need to okay. water and give, <laughs> give tender loving care to whiskey. Yes. Okay. Now, we some of us have got to go and cook tacos. Yeah, we're cooking tacos at the Ronald McDonald House. So excited to Okay. That. Okay. Well, I'll just say, you know, I thought you were doing hot dogs, but probably less less of a chance of screwing up a hot dog than there is of a taco. So a good idea. taco's a bit more complex. So right. I wish you guys good luck. And no doubt you'll so have the some. Team, uh, you wouldn't worry about no, it. No, you'll, uh, you'll probably no doubt have to celebrate afterwards with some adult beverages. Absolutely. Us? Why would we do that? Just need an excuse for a Monday night, right? <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all for joining us. And thanks for the questions, Doug. And Yes, thank you both for your thorough answers. Okay. All right, that's a wrap. We hope you can join us next time. And in the meantime, if you have any questions for the Battery Blarney Duo or anything else you want us to discuss in next week's episode, please email us at info at eepowersolutions.com. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you then.